Great. Good afternoon. Thank you to everyone here, and thank you to those watching online for joining our discussion today on Libya. Over the past year, as much of the world's attention has shifted to the conflict in Syria and the crisis in the Eurozone, news reporting on Libya has plummeted. This absence stands in sharp contrast to the almost obsessive focus we once paid to the country and to its late leader, Muammar Gaddafi. From his role in the Pan Am bombing over Lockerbie, Scotland, to his passion for Halloween costumes and Condoleezza Rice. The 42-year dictator was always a special sort of character, and one who after 9-11 was accepted by much of the West. But with the advent of the Arab awakening, Gaddafi became less known for his eccentricities and more for his brutal repression. After he ordered the deployment of fighter jets against regime opponents and the massacre of unarmed civilians, the UN Security Council authorized military intervention and all necessary means to protect civilians in Libya. Was the NATO no-fly zone successful? What impact will it have for future US policies and interventions? What does Libya look like internally one year after the fall of Tripoli? Judging from the turnout here today, it's clear that people are interested in these questions, despite the lack of news coverage. Here to discuss these issues is an esteemed panel of experts I have the honor and privilege to introduce. Our first speaker will be Dirk Vandewal. He has served and worked and lived in Libya for the almost 15 years. He just recently returned from Libya as a senior political advisor to the Carter Center's election observation mission in Libya. He's the author of Libya Since Independence, published by Cornell University Press, and A History of Modern Libya, published by Cambridge University Press. Last summer, he served as political advisor to the UN Special Envoy in Libya and remains an informal advisor to the Special Envoy on a Social Science Research Council Conflict Prevention and Peace Forum grant. He lectures and consults widely across the Middle East, Europe, and Asia, and is an associate professor of government at Dartmouth College. Our second speaker will be Jonathan Hudson, director of communications at the Enough Project and Genocide and Crimes Against Humanity. In 2010, Hudson led successful negotiations to launch the Satellite Sentinel Project, the world's first open source human rights and security early warning system to, to promote greater accountability for mass atrocities and to deter full-scale war between Sudan and South Sudan. Prior to joining Enough, Hudson served as Chief Communications Officer at Physicians for Human Rights in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Communications Director at Public Justice, a national public interest law firm based here in Washington, DC. He co-authored Bridging the Racial Divide, Interracial Dialogue in America, and he took his master's in French language and literature from Michigan State University and earned his JD from New York University School of Law. Our final speaker will be our, my colleague, Benjamin Friedman, Research Fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies at the Cato Institute. His areas of expertise include counterterrorism, homeland security, and defense politics. He's the author of dozens of op-eds and journal articles and co-editor of two books, including Terrorizing Ourselves, Why U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It, published in 2010. He is a graduate of Dartmouth College and a PhD candidate in political science and an affiliate of the Security Studies Program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And with that, I'll turn the podium over to Mr. Vandewal. Thank you so much, Madhu, for that kind introduction. And thank you all for coming. It's nice to be to see so many uh, friends here um, in the audience. And a special acknowledgment to Ben, who actually was one of my students at Dartmouth. Um, Libya, as Malou said, has uh, been in and out of, of the news uh, intermittently since uh, the fall of uh, Gaddafi in October last year. Um, and uh, I was asked to make some quick uh, notes, some, a quick evaluation of what has happened in Libya um, since that time. Um, and the way I, I tend to uh, think of uh, the kind of challenges that Libya has faced um, essentially in two categories, uh, what I would call the categories uh, related to state building, where uh, this new country, in a sense, had to create all the kind of necessary institutions uh, to make uh, the country governable, uh, and on the other hand, also had to create, in a nation-building sense, um, the, the kind of consensus that is needed to govern once you um, are able, uh, even incompletely, to establish some of those institutions um, of a modern state. Um, and uh, as you all know, um, particularly after 42 years of the Gaddafi regime, um, these, the, the prerequisites for successful uh, state building uh, were not terribly high in, in Libya. This was a country uh, where for all practical purposes, if you think back to Gaddafi's notion of, of the Jamahiriya, the, uh, the notion of statelessness, um, all institutions of a modern state had more or less been eviscerated uh, and done away with. 
Um, and so the challenge, in a sense, Libya started from a tabula rasa uh, and had to create uh, almost out of nothing um, all these institutions that the country truly had never um, really had. Um, and so what we saw was that uh, the country, of course, started off with an enormous uh, amount um, of chaos and that continues uh, to some extent today, although I would argue uh, that it has diminished uh, somewhat. Um, and certainly, um, initially, uh, during the months leading up to the removal of Gaddafi, um, the expectation had been uh, from the stabilization team that was working uh, outside of Libya, but also by some of the groups within Libya, um, that this would turn out to be a reasonably um, orderly um, transition. Of course, in the end, um, it, it turned out that it was not orderly at all, uh, in part because the, uh, the capture of Tripoli was then done by the Western uh, rebels and not by the Eastern rebels that had fought uh, most of the war, of the civil war, uh, against the regime. Um, and so when it happened, in a sense, we saw uh, a, a few weeks before that, the first, uh, the kind of the emergence of the first, what I would call fault lines within um, Libya, perhaps uh, best exemplified by uh, the difficulties that arose around the, the killing of uh, Abdel Fattah Yunus, uh, the former military commander of the eastern part of the country, uh, in its wake of which uh, we saw a number um, of kind of tipping points emerge in, uh, particularly with, uh, for the future of the eastern part of the country. Well, in a sense, uh, the, re the fact um, that uh, the emergence of this new Libya was a lot more chaotic than, anybody, than I think at least some of the Libyans expected, uh, made uh, a number of compromises uh, necessary. Uh, you may remember that the Transitional National Council, the council that is, or at least was uh, in, in charge um, of this state building effort, and that this transitional national council, in a sense, had uh, had appointed itself, was not really seen and is not really seen yet in, in Libya as a truly legitimate uh, enterprise. And as a result of that, it had to make willy-nilly all kinds of compromises, including uh, the appointment, uh, for example, of two of the most important militia leaders um, to the two most important ministries um, in uh, the eventual um, government. Uh, at the same time, um, as I think you're probably all aware, there were lots of um, difficulties um, arising um, after uh, the unification of the, or the end of the Civil War, I should say, um, including the whole federalist issue um, that has reappeared, and perhaps the, uh, the federalist issue has been overstated a little bit. It has more to do with autonomy, actually, than uh, with federalism. But certainly another set of uh, difficulties um, has been uh, the fact that if, if you think back to the Gaddafi regime, one of the ways that that regime uh, was capable of staying in power for 42 years had been a very careful uh, but deliberate use of a kind of divide and rule policy and that had very strategically used the country's financial resources uh, to keep different groups, different individuals in line. Uh, and one of the difficulties, of course, and one of the, as I point out, one of the remaining uh, difficulties in Libya is the fact um, that these issues around the use of patronage, uh, the issues uh, in terms of transparency around um, the use um, of, the of the country's revenues has still not uh, been settled um, adequately, at least not the way um, I would uh, think of it. Well, how, how well has Libya done, let's say, 16, 17 months um, after um, the, the civil war um, started uh, in, in, in the country? Um, first of all, um, I think it's very hard to ignore uh, by anybody who even casually reads the newspapers that there remains an enormous amount of chaos in the country almost on an everyday basis. You hear incidents of some of the militias uh, taking law into their own hands, uh, as a couple of my colleagues will undoubtedly point out, there are still enormous um, human rights uh, violations, uh, lots of torture still taking place. Uh, and perhaps the most, uh, or if, if there's one example that kind of stood out um, as the inability of the government yet to control um, some of the militias, it was the takeover um, of the 4th of June, a few weeks ago, um, of the airport uh, in Tripoli. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you may also remember that that incident was settled within hours, that it was settled uh, by uh, forces of the Interior Ministry, um, and that, in a sense, uh, there was some traction there to those forces of the Interior Ministry that was also starting to take place. So the second problem, I think, um, remains uh, 16, 17 months um, after uh, this conflict started, that. Uh, the Transitional National Council, and undoubtedly the government that will be elected uh, eventually, and um, that the capacity of that government um, still 
um, is largely overwhelmed by the kind of challenges and the number of challenges um, that it faces. And this is undoubtedly something that will continue, not only the military aspect of it, the monopoly of violence, but many, many technical questions uh, in terms of state building um, that the uh, authorities simply are not capable um, of addressing yet. On the other hand, um, of course, we do have uh, the prospect of elections, not just the prospect, the actual elections will take place um, on the 7th um, of July. Um, and kind of indicative, I think, of um, how Libyans um, have taken an interest in their own country. And the, the number of people that have actually registered for these elections is 80% of the electorate. Um, so a very positive development, uh, undoubtedly helped uh, by the expert help um, of UNSMIL, the United Nations Special Mission uh, in Libya over the last uh, few months. What is also surprising, uh, and indeed I think augurs relatively well for the country, is that the original roadmap that was uh, written out uh, by what became the TNC uh, during the Civil War is still largely in place, and that is a roadmap that sees the elections then followed by the eventual writing um, of a constitution and that will spell out the rules of the game, so to speak, um, for Libya um, to come. The third point um, I would like to make is, and, and I think it's very difficult um, for people who are not in Libya, or at least who didn't know Libya before Gaddafi was removed to understand this, but there is a very gradual um, return um, of a kind of a centralized authority to Libya. Uh, and part of that, I think, is a very gradual, and again, I stress it's very gradual, I don't want to overstate this, uh, but the gradual um, diminishing of power um, of the militias. Uh, I remember when I went in initially that uh, you were stopped several times a night uh, on the roads, uh, particularly around the major cities, but also on the Litoritania, going into Benghazi and, and going into the south. Much of that um, has already diminished. There have been several incidents where the militias, uh, when they took a certain action, were immediately corrected either by other militias or again by forces um, of the interior uh, ministry. Um, so I think, uh, again, a very good development, uh, but again, I wouldn't want um, to um, overstate it. On the other hand, I think they're all also, from a state-building point of view, signs that um, the government itself is very slowly gaining some traction. Uh, the ministries are working, um, all kinds of normal aspects um, that, we exp that we in the West take for granted are gradually emerging. The educational system is uh, being um, rethought. Um, all kinds of little, little uh, you know, life in, on a daily basis in Libya has uh, returned to its normalcy, um, although there are still occasionally, um, of course, the daily sh uh, shootings and so on that you, uh, that you hear about um, in uh, the press. Uh, what is also important, I think, is that this notion of federalism that I talked about um, has really gained relatively uh, traction, uh, relatively little traction um, in the country. And I, I realize um, that as we speak, um, the, the Barca army, the army in the eastern part of the country, is, is making some of its demand, and certainly the Brigadier General, Mr. Hassi, in charge um, of the Barca army, um, has made a number of demands. Uh, and that, I think, may eventually uh, become worse, uh, and certainly would be one of the scenarios I would see um, as Libya slipping back uh, rather than moving forward. But I think at this particular point in time, it is not yet um, a major challenge. We also shouldn't forget um, that oil and the oil industry in Libya, much like in 1963, you may remember that Libya uh, moved away from a federal system in 1963 in part um, to make the oil industry function, um, that again the oil industry uh, and the need to market oil um, has served as an integrative um, element uh, in the new Libya, much as it did uh, in the early 1960s. Um, and then finally, um, I want to come back to this little point that I made, um, that there is relatively uh, little traction for federalism yet um, at um, this point. Uh, and I say that because there have been lots of demonstrations against federalism um, in the streets, uh, even popular demonstrations um, against um, federalism. And it's clear that at this point, a group that represents federalism um, is still a minority um, in uh, the country. So. Is the glass half full then or half empty uh, in Libya? Um, I would argue um, that uh, certainly at this point in time, um, it's um, half full. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, um, that everything, uh, particularly in light of the, the kind of deficiencies that I talked about, that everything 
uh, will go very smoothly. Uh, I would anticipate, uh, frankly, that uh, this kind of state building and particularly the creation of a national consensus, this nation building that I talked about, will probably take years, if not a generation, uh, before and this will be um, straightened out. Again, if you think back um, to the kind of legacy of the Gaddafi regime, uh, all of these new principles, these new rules, uh, are really truly brand new to a lot of Libyans. There's no history um, of playing by the, the rules, and it's very easy in an oil state uh, to step back and decide not to participate in part because oil money uh, can be used very strategically, as indeed the TNC itself already has done, you know, buying off the 2R, the revolutionaries to some extent, and um, giving money um, to those that had been political prisoners uh, under Gaddafi. Again, perhaps willy-nilly, uh, but certainly it indicates the power of money, the power of, re of revenues uh, in the new Libya um, as well. But my hunch would be that in the end, um, Libya may well turn out to be the exception uh, in the Middle East uh, to uh, the fact that we normally tend to think of oil exporters as having these highly authoritarian governments that do not give political voice to their people. And I think there is a good chance that Libya eventually will emerge, uh, perhaps not immediately as the, the democracy that we would like it uh, to be. Uh, and that, of course, uh, is a matter of timing as much as uh, institutional organization. Uh, the second point um, is that I think Libya so far um, has profited quite handsomely um, from what I would uh, uh, term a kind of a clear-eyed leadership um, that is not perfect, um, certainly is not very glamorous in many ways, perhaps uh, a good thing that it isn't too glamorous. No one wants to see another charismatic leader like Gaddafi uh, initially was. But nevertheless, a leadership, I think, um, that um, has been dedicated, that has taken very good international expertise uh, on board, and I think um, that augurs very well. The drawback I see um, is that uh, there is still um, very much, and we see this in the polling, uh, remember polling is brand new in Libya also, uh, but there certainly remains a lack of identity when Libyans were asked in the recent polling what their primary uh, focus of identity was. More than 70% um, said uh, Islam, uh, and Libya came as a very, very distant third. Uh, you know, very problematic in a sense, in part because that can be exploited, and already we've seen that it is being exploited by particularly some of the Islamist uh, parties. Um, and so, in the end then, uh, I think although this is a very positive uh, development so far, at least the way I look at it, um, there are still two scenarios under which I think Libya could really backtrack very substantially, and hopefully these will uh, not happen. The first one um, is the one I mentioned, uh, the federalism, but particularly uh, the fact that the Barca army or the army of Cyrenaica uh, has become uh, a lot more outspoken, um, has become more powerful, um, and is now making increasing uh, demands against the government uh, in, in Tripoli. Uh, the second one uh, would be where um, some of the militias um, ally themselves with uh, political parties. Uh, there was a little bit of evidence of that uh, a few months ago, uh, it seems to have disappeared somewhat, but if indeed uh, we would see this, it would simply mean uh, that in a sense we would probably uh, in Libya see a kind of a Lebanon a situation develop where political parties are allied with uh, militias and then use that, that kind of combination uh, deliberately to upset the apple cart, um, so to speak. So overall, it's a kind of, a, 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 I think, a moderately optimistic um, scenario um, of where Libya stands now, certainly from the point um, of state building, and, and certainly as somebody who has been uh, in Libya both before the civil war and after, uh, there is a very different sense uh, uh, within uh, the country, certainly a, a much greater sense of, uh, of openness than anything we saw ever before um, in the country. Uh, so let me maybe stop there, uh, Malou. Thank you. I was really struck by um, by your comments about uh, a country with really no history of following the rules, you know, faced by challenges of, of federalism with you know, militias running around. Uh, I think it uh, it's a call for some humility on behalf of you know people who engage in modern statecraft. We have no certitude about what will happen. And when we intervene militarily or diplomatically in the affairs of another nation, which shouldn't be an excuse to sit on our hands and do nothing. But uh, I think the case of Libya and other Arab Spring cases 
invite us to uh, look for uh, meaningful metrics and evaluations of if the new regime in Libya is succeeding, how do we know it's succeeding? How are we going to measure success? How are we going to evaluate that? How are we going to support it? And um, I think it's also helpful to put the situation of Libya in a bit of a broader context, and which means a timeline of events as well as a regional map. And to recall that, um, you know, while Libya is cited uh, frequently, uh, more and more often, as an example of the supposed success of the R2P doctrine, the International Responsibility to Protect doctrine, um, I think that it also raises some, some deep questions. As you know, the Responsibility to Protect doctrine holds that states have the responsibility to protect civilians from mass atrocity crimes. And should states fail in their responsibility, let's say allow militia groups to massacre civilians, or should uh, a state government actually perpetrate a genocide or mass uh, killings or ethnic cleansing against its own people, then the responsibility to protect falls to the international community. So that's the doctrine. In the case of Libya, um, people are often uh, quick to think of it in association with military intervention. But um, the responsibility to protect doctrine, which is uh, just a little over a decade old now, actually teaches that a military intervention should be a last resort. And um, I'm not sure whether it was seen as a last resort. We were fairly uh, a quick uh, resort to military intervention in Libya. Um, but one takeaway that, uh, that was had in Libya, part of the Obama doctrine, I think, is that there was a call for the involvement of regional governments, that it wouldn't be a unilateral action where the United States would be seen as a leader or a sole actor. But they were waiting for cues from the African Union, which is typically fence sitting in these situations, to make a commitment of support, waiting for uh, Muslim leaders, for Arab states to weigh in themselves, waiting for other actors in the international community to come forward. Uh, and so that was, that was a, there's a bit of a comparison to be made between the interventions that were uh, seen in Libya and uh, a relative seeming lack of intervention in Syria or Sudan. But to put Libya in a broader context, and remember, you know, to date we've seen in Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Syria, Bahrain, Yemen, uh, street uprisings as part of the, the Arab Spring, which is now reverberating in Sudan. Um, at the Enough Project, which is part of the uh, think tank over on H Street, the Center for American Progress, our aim is to end genocide and crimes against humanity. And we were looking at the, the case of Sudan, where in fact there were street protests, Arab Spring-style street protests in Sudan before there were protests in Tunisia or Libya. So some of the first winds of change began to blow in Sudan. Over the past 10 days, those winds have gotten ever stronger. I mean, just last night, if you read today's edition of the New York Times, you'll see that the government of Sudan has deported an Egyptian uh, journalist, Salma El-Wardani, who was reporting for Bloomberg. And they've also detained uh, many, many social media activists, uh, Sudanese uh, bloggers and uh, Twitter activists and people posting YouTube videos and, and uh, organizing rallies on Facebook. These people are peaceful protesters being detained for no good reason. Sudan is also confiscating newspapers, and there's just a, a complete lack of you know, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, you know, when, when the intervention was, was swiftly done in the case of, of Libya, the world made a decision. We can't stand by and watch the Gaddafi regime slaughter its own people on the 6 o'clock news. You know, they brought in not only military warplanes, but also tanks and artillery, long-range artillery, and were bombarding civilians in Benghazi. And, you know, under the Geneva Conventions, the indiscriminate bombardment of civilians can constitute a war crime. 
So the world made a decision to, to quickly rally regional support, rally the international community, and you know, press for sanctions and diplomatic action first, very swiftly followed by uh, NATO bombing of hard military targets with some collateral damage, unfortunately, uh, which is also a serious cause for concern. But uh, we haven't seen similar actions in, in Syria or Sudan. And uh, the people in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan and in Sudan's border area of Blue Nile State are being bombarded daily, every day, for the past several months. Actually, since uh, June 6 of 2011, there's been a steady campaign of uh, ethnic cleansing and indiscriminate bombardment of civilians, house-to-house -house mass killings by death squads, uh, mass graves in the disputed oil-producing border region of Abye, as well as the Sudanese border region of South Kordofan and the Sudanese border region of Blue Nile State. Uh, many people are fleeing, crossing the border into South Sudan and to Ethiopia, becoming refu refugees. Some people are escaping toward Egypt. There's not always uh, the facilities, food and water. About five people every day die from a lack of potable water at the refugee camps in South Sudan. When they arrive, you know, on foot, it might take them a week or more to get there. And a lot of the, uh, the children, the injured and the elderly people don't make the, uh, the journey. And so there's a fair question posed by the Sudanese people of, hey, we saw the international community so promptly react so swiftly with NATO bombing in Libya in the case of Benghazi, and yet it seems there's little more than sternly worded letters in the case of Sudan. And so one of the questions that you know, we might be uh, asking ourselves is, short of troops on the ground and greater than sternly worded letters, what more can the international community do? I would submit that part of what we can all do as people who support basic freedom and respect for international human rights is look, you know, not only to modern statecraft and the tools of diplomacy involving regional actors in the international community, but we could also look to the private sector. And that's one of the things we've been trying at the Enough Project as we've led a, a project conceived by actor and activist George Clooney called the Satellite Sentinel Project. He was visiting southern Sudan with our co-founder John Prendergast on October 4 of 2010, and he said, always before, war criminals have had deniability. They've been able to say, uh, we didn't get them, commit the mass killings, and you can't prove it, and there's no evidence, and you weren't there. And in many cases, these, uh, these mass atrocities occur where journalists are not allowed and where the UN is not allowed to patrol. And so how do you get independent documentation of the level that you could actually seek accountability in a criminal court? say, the International Criminal Court in The Hague, or in any other court. Uh, so we decided to go to the commercial satellite sector and say, what if we could focus high-resolution commercial satellites? It's not government money, right? Commercial satellites and uh, private actors like you know, uh, students from Harvard University helping to interpret the imagery, backstopped by geospatial analysts at a private firm called Digital Globe in Longmont, Colorado commercial satellite firm, together with ground intel put together by folks like us at the Enough Project, along with open source intel. Read the papers, read the TV, listen to the radio, talk to people on the ground, public information, nothing classified. And what if we could try to deny deniability as a form of intervention? So part of the responsibility to protect is, you know, what can we as private citizens do? How can we become involved? And part of the success of the Satellite Sentinel Project is realizing that we don't have to rely solely on governments, although governments have a role, but private actors too have a role. And so for the first time, we set about to gather, interpret, and publish satellite imagery in near real time of mass atrocities and document mass killings and mass graves and village raisings, troop movements and military movements for the first time 
outside the national security arena in human history, which is why we've called it the, the world's first early warning system for human rights and human security. So partly what we've seen with the responsibility to protect in, in Libya, in Syria, in Sudan, in Egypt, has been the role of the commercial satellite sector. You know, many of the protests uh, that you saw in CNN, the visuals that you were seeing on the BBC or CNN or any of the network news or PBS, uh, were actually satellite images. In many cases, people were assuming, how'd they get that satellite shot? Or how'd they get a plane to fly over and without it getting shot down? The answer was, many of those shots, many of the visuals, were actually high-resolution commercial satellite shots taken by satellites flying three and 400 miles high at 17,000 miles per hour ground speed. But they were at such high resolution that you could actually see, this is the group of burqa-clad women in Tahrir Square, differentiated from this is the group of male protesters. Uh, and you could document things and corroborate the citizen reports that were coming in. Much of the best information uh, was gathered by citizen journalists on their own behalf using you know, low-tech cell phones, YouTube videos corroborated by satellite imagery. And um, in some cases, you know, we saw very simple technologies brought to bear by corporations like Google and Twitter. You know, when Egypt threatened to cut off the internet, and did cut off the internet, Google partnered with Twitter to say, all right, well, if the internet shut off, how could we just give people three phone numbers to call so that if you call the number from your cell phone, you can instantly post a hashtag about the Arab Spring demonstrations to Twitter. The whole world's still gonna see it. And then that actually becomes part of the story. You tried to shut down free speech and the, the, the failed attempt at censorship actually drives the media narrative forward. So, I mean, part of what we have seen as the, the limited measured successes in Libya and what we could point to as hoped for successes in the future in Syria and Sudan is what people are trying to do on their own behalf. And part of it, frankly, is a realization by people that in many cases, modern statecraft you know, has failed, has either intervened too quickly, too harshly with the wrong tools, without anticipating the effects, without being able to accurately measure and evaluate the consequences and we still don't know whether Libya is, is more of a success or more of a failure. Um, on the other hand, you know, we can't sit and do nothing either. We have to take action. So in many cases, I think it's private citizens that are leading the way forward and uh, being able to advise the state actors. Maybe one of the best things we could do is empower and support democracy and governance, teach people what a democracy looks like. You know, one of the things that happened that was a success in Libya uh, is the creation of uh, free and open uh, satellite TV. So instead of just telling people what democracy looks like, you show them what it looks like by giving them an open mic without a hand on a kill switch to say, whether you're Muslim or Christian or animist or atheist or any particular political party, come have your say, no one's gonna jam you, the regime can't jam you, no one's going to censor you. Uh, and that's, it's a messy process, but democracy is a messy process. So I guess we, we shouldn't expect you know, neat solutions. We're certainly never gonna get neat solutions, right? Uh, so, and any successes that we've seen, I think we would agree are qualified successes, conditional successes, and yet to be fully borne out and measured and evaluated successes. Um, so I hope I don't leave you with, with too much of a, a, a sense that nothing can be done, because absolutely we do have responsibility to protect civilians. But I would also say, let's be cautious in the ways and the tools that we use to intervene, and let's uh, approach modern statecraft with the humility and the knowledge that ultimately the durable solutions are not going to come about from you know, the United States. Much as we might like to think so, you know, think tanks, Center for American Progress, or Cato maybe has more answers than, than CAP some days, but I don't think that ultimately the answers are gonna come from the United States, mm -hmm. from think tanks. 
even if they do provide the, uh, a paycheck, or from governments. I think really the durable solutions are going to come from the people on the ground. And so I think it's uh, a key part of our job is not looking to, you know, who should we bomb first, but who should we support first? Who should we train to understand the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, what it means to uphold freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, respect for religious pluralism, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, uh, and give people practical tools. And often these are not necessarily government tools. They could be you know, tools from the private sector and from non-governmental organizations that will be the, the most effective in the long run. So I hope that's some food for thought, and I invite your questions later. All right, uh, thanks everybody for coming. I'm not an expert on uh, Libya, and therefore I want to avoid talking too much about its politics, uh, particularly since um, my former professor is here, and he's the great expert on Libya, so I feel like I was failing a midterm or something. But um, what I am going to do is examine the rationales that uh, our leaders, the Obama administration in particular, gave last year for military intervention in Libya and sort of look at how they fared. Um, there were three main goals, uh, to, to promote liberal democracy in Libya, to demonstrate our resolve, uh, to defend protest movements in, in the Middle East and allow those movements to peacefully establish democracies, and to save lives. And um, I think none of these rationales has held up uh, particularly well, although time could change that, I think particularly with regard to uh, the democracy piece, and, and I could be uh, wrong. But my bottom line at the moment is that the odds of uh, liberal government um, in Libya are long. Uh, the demonstration effect in other nations is either non-existent or counterproductive. And uh, from a humanitarian perspective, the intervention seems uh, likely to do more harm than good, at least in the near future. And I think the, the most likely result uh, of pulling down a weak government like Libya's is prolonged disorder and at least sporadic violence. Uh, conditions that are contrary to liberal and humanitarian norms of good, even if they lead ultimately uh, to uh, a better Libya. Uh, and to be clear, I'm, I'm not arguing that the revolution in Libya failed uh, or that it was unjustified. I think Gaddafi's uh, downfall from his unofficial perch uh, is itself evidence enough that the revolution succeeded. Uh, and to me, the, it, it seems well justified. What I am arguing is that uh, intervention in Libya deserves neither the adjective uh, humanitarian nor the adjective liberal, at least if you think adjectives should describe nouns, outcomes, rather than the hopes that cause their use. Uh, so before I get to the three main arguments that I just mentioned, it's worth uh, mentioning a couple smaller arguments that justified uh, our intervention, Western intervention or, or international intervention last March. Uh, one is allies. Uh, Secretary of Defense, then Secretary of Defense Bob Gates said last June, uh, basically that our, our European allies considered Libya a vital interest. Um, and uh, since those allies supported us in Afghanistan, we had to support them uh, in Libya, even though it wasn't a vital interest for the United States. Um, you know, I, I tend to think talking about vital interests uh, tends to distract more than it uh, illuminates. But I, I think there, there's two problems with this argument. Uh, first, it's, it's not clear that nations go to war uh, out of alliance solidarity. Uh, several of our allies uh, sent troops to Afghanistan and not Iraq, presumably because they thought one was a good idea and not another, not because they thought they owed us participation in all our wars. Uh, and second, uh, nations shouldn't fight wars uh, out of alliance solidarity. Uh, that was the sort of thing that 18th century Americans had in mind when they worried about permanent alliances pulling us into needless wars. And it's a reason why alliance treaties make the use of force conditional on certain things rather than just saying, we go wherever you go. Um, and th this alliance logic uh, for intervention expressed by Gates is, to me, it's sort of akin to saying, Officer, uh, I was only helping my friend rob the bank because he mowed my lawn. Um, I, I think you know we should have uh, allies for war rather than war for allies. The, the second minor reason uh, or minor justification for the intervention was refugee flows. The president uh, said in his big speech right on the eve of war last year, um, uh, or the eve of uh, bombing, uh, that one reason uh, we were doing what we were doing in Libya is that otherwise refugee flows would disrupt uh, nearby nations. At, at the time, uh, I thought that was a pretty silly rationale. 
uh, for war. But as it happened, uh, refugees from Libya did destabilize a nearby state, except uh, that it was uh, our rebel allies that drove out the relevant uh, refugees who were Torog uh, tribesmen that had fought with uh, Gaddafi and that fled uh, back to Mali, where they helped reignite an insurgency, and then Malayan military officers who were unhappy with their government's response to that insurgency uh, overthrew the government in a coup, which is now civilian rule has uh, at least nominally been restored, uh, but it seems the military is still pulling the strings. So um, thus far, uh, military intervention uh, in Libya seems to have reduced the number of democracies in the world by one. Uh, which brings me uh, to my first, uh, to the first major argument uh, for intervention, which is to install the idea that we would help install liberal government uh, or democracy in, in Libya. Uh, the president uh, and secretary of state both mentioned this prominently last year. Uh, the president said uh, in, in March, uh, we must stand alongside those who believe in the same core principles that have guided us through many storms our opposition to violence directed at one's own people, our support for a set of universal rights, including the freedom for people to express themselves and choose their leaders, our support for governments that are ultimately responsive to the aspirations of the people. And to, when he says stand by here, we have to stand by those people, what he means is fight with, since he was at the time justifying uh, military action. And so in doing that, I think he's presenting a, a false dichotomy where we either fight for people that aspire to freedoms or ignore them entirely. And as we just heard, uh, there's, there's probably some middle ground. Uh, and, and we can, uh, as another president once said, uh, support liberty abroad without being its armed vindicator. Um, and even more important flaw in this justification for intervention is, I think, the at least implicit idea that, that once uh, tyrants go, liberal democracy sort of naturally spawns in his absence. And um, there's a lot of political science about what causes democracy. There's all sorts of controversies. But I think it's fair to say that countries uh, historically became uh, liberal democracies, uh, meaning not only that they have free and fair elections, but also governed via separated powers uh, and laws and protect rights. They only uh, got there uh, after they developed a functional state that enforced laws and achieved basic agreement on nationhood within the country's borders, an agreement to sort of live by the rules, a sort of a standard pattern. Um, and uh, Libya lacks, uh, at, at least in large parts, a lot of those preconditions that we associate with democracy. Um, and a lot of the reason for that, I think, is, is described in, in Professor Vanderwall's book, uh, Libra, Libya Since Independence, Oil and State Building. Oil wealth, uh, as uh, he said, uh, let Libya grow into a state that spends money rather than extracting it from the private economy, and that not only retarded the private sector uh, by causing rent-seeking, but also the public sector uh, and the, the sort of ideological development of nationhood that, that typically goes uh, with the, the growth of government. So rather than build government uh, to tax wealth and legitimize its, its course of collection, be a social contract, uh, the path that most Western states took to liberalism. Libya's leaders could just tap oil revenue uh, to buy off elites and fund the military without creating a coherent political community. I'm just paraphrasing uh, Professor Vanderwell. So uh, to me, that says that the institutional and uh, normative basis for state unity, and certainly democracy, uh, is weak in Libya. Um, the, the second major justification for uh, intervention there is uh, uh, this credibility or demonstration effect idea. The administration said repeatedly uh, that by fighting in Libya, we would encourage democratic movements in other countries and show uh, leaders likely to crack down on those movements harshly that the international community would not allow that, wouldn't allow repression. Um, now, th these sorts of credibility arguments attach arguably peripheral concerns to uh, more important ones. That's the old term for the, these sorts of arguments, which was domino theories. Um, which is why uh, they're most prominently used to justify wars where our interests are few. I think credibility arguments have two uh, fatal flaws. First, there's little evidence that states pass record in carrying out threats. It's credibility. Uh, much matters to threatened states. Uh, political scientists are nearly unanimous in finding that when uh, leaders consider whether to imply with another state's threats, uh, their decision making turns mostly on the balance of military power and the threat maker's interests. Uh, rather than some rating of its credibility. Soviet leaders didn't measure American commitment to defend Europe by its resolve, our resolve in fighting a useless war in Vietnam. The stakes were obviously different. Uh, and, and leaders, I think, will pay even less attention to threats or credibility when it's their own survival uh, that they're worried about. 
Um, Iran's leaders are, are not uh, going to think that the UN's enforcement of a no-fly zone or a no-drive zone over Libya says much about the UN's willingness to protect uh, civilians uh, from the government of Iran. I think, um, it's just going to be a very low consideration, I would say, for the, for the people in charge there. And then even if credibility does matter, um, our actions might backfire in, in, the, in the sense of credibility. I think to the extent that the Syrian leadership uh, learns something from Libya, uh, the lesson would be to nip unrest in the bud, uh, to heighten repression at the outset, lest uh, protests morph into, this, in, into a violent, uh, into a revolt coherent enough to attract Western military support uh, that ultimately gets you dragged to The Hague for trial or murdered uh, for posterity on YouTube. Um, and I think by fighting as we did in Libya, uh, where we use only air power against a circumscribed, very circumscribed target set, where we hand leadership to others as soon as possible, and generally show sort of historically uh, unique amounts of disregard for the outcome of the war we're in the middle of fighting, I think we show that we're unwilling to shed a drop of uh, American blood, and not even much Libyan blood, in pursuit of our goals. And if that sets a message, which I'm skeptical about, I don't know that it would be resolved. Um, and by the way, it also says, I think, uh, that the administration might not have taken its own rhetoric about the need for war uh, quite as seriously uh, as they seem to, given uh, the lack of willingness to commit forces and take risks. Um, the third major rationale for intervention was, uh, of course, humanitarian. And I, here I think I'll, uh, this will be the most controversial part of what I say. Uh, th that is the lives we stop by advance, uh, stopping the advance of, of Qaddafi's forces in March, particularly into Benghazi. Uh, protecting civilians uh, was the, the rationale for uh, authorizing force uh, in UN Security Council Resolution uh, 1973. Um, it was uh, protecting uh, civilians, particularly in Benghazi, was uh, the reason cited most, I think, by the administration in justifying what we did. Dennis Ross, who was on the NSC staff then, said that the administration acted with force to, quote, or to avoid, quote, uh, the imminent possibility that up to 100,000 people could be massacred and everyone would blame us for it, unquote. Uh, it was in news reports. Obama, uh, the president, was more reserved in, in his uh, speech on the eve of war. Uh, saying, um, left unchecked, uh, we have every reason to believe that Gaddafi would commit atrocities against his people. Many thousand would die. A humanitarian crisis would ensue. He also said there uh, in that speech that Gaddafi had threatened uh, no mercy and no pity to the 700,000 people uh, in Benghazi. And other White House uh, officials have used uh, other quotes from Gaddafi uh, to make similar points. Uh, but. Uh, the translation I've seen of the uh, March 17th speech that Obama was uh, citing there, uh, in that Gaddafi was uh, clearly, uh, the speech is not very clear, uh, but uh, it's, it's pretty clear that Gaddafi was saying to show no mercy uh, towards rebel fighters uh, and, and not to harm, he explicitly says not to harm those who laid down arms. Um, and he says to cleanse uh, Benghazi of rebels, but not to cleanse it of everyone. Um, and this, the same goes for this other speech from February 22nd uh, that's often cited where Gaddafi uh, famously called the rebels rats. He was talking about the rebels. And, and my point isn't that we should have banked on uh, what Gaddafi said in his ranting uh, speeches, uh, but rather that he didn't say uh, what the White House said he did about wanting to slaughter his own people. And that's an important point uh, that almost nobody makes. Um, and then this claim that we averted a, a huge massacre hasn't aged well. Uh, there are various examples uh, that I can cite more specifically, if you want, of towns and cities uh, that the regime retook from rebels, uh, where the regime's forces could have slaughtered civilians. Uh, it knew to be mostly opposed to the regime, but did not. Um, they certainly, the regime forces, certainly used uh, indiscriminate force uh, while fighting, as uh, when they shelled uh, Misrata, and there are reports of, of people being executed summarily, uh, or uh, prisoners executed as regime forces were leaving, and so forth. But there's not any evidence uh, of uh, the widespread systematic slaughter that the administration said was the basis for our intervention. Um, and there's also instances, uh, a couple instances of uh, systematic executions by rebel fighters. Um, and overall, um, the, the, the 
killing rate of civilians and fighters looks fairly similar to what you see in other civil wars in, in developing countries. So my point isn't to trivialize the violence and the atrocities that took place in Libya, but to attack the claim that there was some special humanitarian imperative to intervene at the moment we did. Um, and I think events uh, in, in Libya since the Civil War ended uh, last fall have, have not been a, a rousing success for human rights. It hasn't been uh, a war of all against all, but there is violence uh, between the militias, as we heard. Uh, they, there are five to 7,000 prisoners being held with no legal process or hardly any legal process. Um, Doctors Without Borders uh, suspended operations in Misrata in January after treating uh, they said 115 people with torture-related wounds, mostly brought to them uh, by militiamen, uh, hoping to repair the prisoners for further torture. Uh, and there was a, uh, a town of 30,000 that was basically burned out, ethically cleansed. Um, so, um, and I think a, a bigger problem with the idea that, that military intervention uh, did a, a, was a, a net gain for humanitarianism is that uh, in the short term, at least, it prolonged a civil war and ushered in an indefinite period of instability. Um, the administration says this time credibly that the uh, implementation of the no-fly or no-drive zone in, in March uh, 2011 uh, prevented Gaddafi from winning the civil war. Now, if that's true, and uh, if uh, we're only interested in maximizing uh, Libyans' lives, then we probably took the wrong side in the war. Um, statistically, police states tend to be safer places for uh, people to live in than, than anarcho-environments, especially civil war, which, uh, as we know, is one of the great killers in the world today due to direct violence and due to the collapse of government sanitation and health services. Um, so that, that brings me to my conclusion, uh, which is uh, a request that those that favor uh, fostering revolutions overseas think more about the difficulties and virtues of political order. Um, as citizens of uh, liberal democracies and inheritors of long, stable political institutions, I think we're prone to see illiberal government as inimical to every social virtue, including humanitarianism, and uh, to underestimate coercion's contribution to political order. Uh, we tend to think of states where coercion is naked and democracy absent as strong states. Uh, but it's, it's actually weak states, I think, that are, that are lacking in the ideological and organizational glue that we take for granted uh, that rely the most on fear for coherence. Uh, so states where few rule roughly over many, like Syria, are those most prone to uh, collapse into violent chaos. And I think those misperceptions uh, contribute to our, in my opinion, rather reckless habit now of tearing down odious governments and assuming that liberalism will somehow result, and that even if it doesn't, uh, things can hardly get worse than Saddam or Gaddafi or Assad, even though the vast majority of human history is uh, ungoverned anarchy, where the, which was indeed far worse uh, by almost every measure we have of good outcomes for humans. So this is not an argument for police states or against overthrowing them. Uh, I'm against police states, and I think if I lived in them, I'd be for overthrowing them. At least I hope I would. Uh, my point is instead uh, that, that one uh, generally has to choose between A, uh, making a war in the name of liberal ideals, uh, as I think we did in Libya, and B, uh, the minimization of human suffering. And uh, those ends uh, rarely recommend the same policy, especially in relatively weak states like Libya.